Hello and welcome to Around the World in 80 Books. We have only got two episodes left, and for this one, I thought I'd treat you with a novel by my favourite author, and probably person, whom I have never met. Julio Cortázar was an Argentinian author who capitalised on Borges' literary legacy and took it to a much less literary and more human and humane level. Rayuela, or Hopscotch, is an experimental novel which works like a game, and who knows me personally knows that I do love a good game, particularly when there are no winners or losers. Today, you're going to play the hopscotch game with me. I'll take you to Paris, and next time, perhaps, to Buenos Aires. Hopscotch by Julio Cortázar Translated by Gregory Rabassa 1. Would I find La Maga? Most of the time, it was just a case of my putting in an appearance, going along the Rue de Seine to the arch leading into the Quai de Conti, and I would see her slender form against the olive-ashen light which floats along the river as she crossed back and forth on the Pont des Arts, or leaned over the iron rail looking at the water. It was quite natural for me to climb the steps to the bridge, go into its narrowness and over to where La Maga stood. She would smile and show no surprise, convinced as she was, the same as I, that casual meetings are apt to be just the opposite, and that people who make dates are the same kind who need lines on their writing paper, or who always squeeze up from the bottom on a tube of toothpaste. But now, she would not be on the bridge. The thin glow of her face was probably peeking into the old doorways, into the Marais ghetto. Or maybe she was talking to a woman who sells fried potatoes. Or she might be eating a hot sausage on the Boulevard de Sebastopol. In any case, I went out onto the bridge, and there was no maga. I did not run into her along the way either. We each knew where the other lived. Every cranny we old up in our pseudo-student existence in Paris. Every window by Brat, Girlandaio or Max Ernst, set into cheap postcard frames and ringed with gaudy posters. But we never looked each other up at home. We preferred meeting on the bridge, at a sidewalk cafe, at an art movie, or crouched over a cat in some Latin quarter courtyard. We did not go around looking for each other, but we knew that we would meet just the same. Oh, Maga. Whenever I saw a woman who looked like you, a clear, sharp pause would close in like a deafening silence, collapsing like a wet umbrella being closed. An umbrella, precisely. Maybe you remember, Maga, that old umbrella we sacrificed in a gully in Montsouris Park, one sunset on a cold March day. We threw it away, because you had found it half-broken in the Place de la Concorde, and you had got a lot of use from it, especially for digging into people's ribs on the metro, or on a bus as you lethargically thought about the design the flies on the ceiling made. There was a cloud burst that afternoon, and you tried to open your umbrella in the park in a proud sort of way, but your hand got all wrapped up in a catastrophe of gold lightning shafts and black clouds, 
strips of torn cloth falling from the ruins of unfrocked spokes, and we both laughed like madmen as we got soaked, thinking that an umbrella found in a public square ought to die a noble death in a park, and not get involved in the mean cycle of trash can or gutter. Then I rolled it up as best as I could, and we took it to the top of the park near the little bridge over the railroad tracks, and from there I threw it with all my might to the bottom of the gully, where it landed on the wet grass, as you gave out with a shout in which I thought I vaguely recognised the curse of a Valkyrie. It sank into the gully like a ship into green water, stormy green water, into la mer qui est plus felonesse en antique qu'en hiver, into the treacherous wave, Maga, as we counted for a long time, in love with Joinville or with the park, embracing like wet trees or like actors in some second-rate Hungarian movie. And it stayed down there in the grass, small and black, like some trampled insect. And it did not move. None of its springs popped out as once before. Ended. Over. Oh, Maga. And still we were not satisfied. Why was I coming to the Pont des Arts? It seemed to me that on that December Thursday I had intended crossing over to the right bank to have some wine in the little café on the Rue de Lombard, where Madame Léonie reads my palm and tells me of trips and surprises. I never took you to have Madame Léonie read your palm, probably because I was afraid that she would read some truth about me in your hand, because you have always been a frightful mirror, a monstrous instrument of repetitions, and what we had called loving was perhaps my standing in front of you holding a yellow flower while you held two green candles and a slow rain of renunciations and farewells and metro tickets blew into our faces. So I never took you to Madame Leonie's, Maga. You told me so, and that is how I know that you did not like my watching you go into that little bookshop on the Rue de Verneuil, where a burdened old man fills out thousands of reference cards and knows everything there is to know about the study of history. You used to go out there to play with a cat, and the old man let you in and didn't ask questions, content to have you get him a book from the upper shelves. You used to get warm at that stove of his, with its big black pipe, and you didn't like me to know that you were going to sit next to that stove. But all of this should have been said in its proper time, except that it was difficult to know what the proper time for things was. And even now, with my elbows on the railing of the bridge, as I watched a small, must-coloured peniche, sparkling clean like a great, big, beautiful cockroach, with a woman in a white apron hanging wash on a wire strung along the prow. As I looked at its windows painted green, with Hansel and Gretel curtains, even now, Maga, I wondered if this roundabout route made any sense, since it would have been easier to reach the Rue de Lombard by the Pont Saint-Michel and the Pont au Change. But if you had been there that night, and so many other times, then I would have known that the roundabout made sense, while now, on the other hand, I debase my failure by calling it a roundabout. 
I raised the collar of my lumber jacket, and it was a matter of going along the docks until I came to where the large shops go on to the Châtelet, passing underneath the violet shadow of the Tour Saint-Jacques, and turning into my street, thinking about the fact that I had not met you and about Madame Leoni. I know that one day I came to Paris. I know that I was living off loans for a while, doing what the others did and seeing what they saw. I know that you were coming out of a café on the Rue de Cherche-Midi and that we spoke. Everything had been going badly that afternoon because the habits I had brought from Argentina would not permit me to cross from one sidewalk to the other to look at silly items in the dimly lit shop windows on streets I don't remember anymore. I followed you grudgingly then, finding you petulant and rude, until you got tired of not being tired and we went into a café on the Boumiche. And all of a sudden, in between two croissants, you told me a whole chunk of your life. How was I to have suspected that what seemed to be a pack of lies was all true, a figari with sunset violets, with livid faces, with hunger and blows in the corners. I came to believe you later on. Later on there was reason to, there was Madame Leonie. You looked at my hand which had gone to bed with your breasts and she practically repeated your exact words. She is suffering somewhere. She has always suffered. She is very gay, she adores yellow. Her bird is the blackbird. Her time is night. Her bridge is the Pont des Arts, a must-coloured peniche, Maga, and I wondered why we didn't sail off on it, while there was still time. We had barely come to know each other when life began to plot everything necessary for us to stop meeting, little by little. Since you didn't know how to fake, I realised at once that in order to see you, as I wanted to, I would have to begin by shutting my eyes. And then, at first some things like yellow stars moving around in a velvet jelly, then red jumps of humour and time, and sudden entry into a MAGA world, awkward and confused, but also with ferns signed by a clee spider, a Miro circus, Viera da Silva, ash mirrors, a chess world, where you moved about like a knight trying to move like a rook, trying to move like a bishop. In those days we used to go to art movies to see silent pictures, because I had my culture, maybe not, but you, poor thing, didn't understand anything at all about that yellow and convulsed shrieking which had all taken place before you were born, that grooved emulsion in which dead people ran about. But suddenly, Harold Lloyd would go by and then you would shake off the water of your dream and you would finally be convinced that all was well and that Pabst and that Fritzlang. You used to make me a little sick with your mania for perfection, with your run-down shoes, with your refusal to accept the acceptable. We used to eat hamburgers in the Carrefour de l'Odéon and we used to go cycling to Montparnasse, to any hotel any pillow. Then other times we would go all the way to the Pont d'Orléans and we would become more and more familiar with the vacant lots beyond the Boulevard Jourdain 
where sometimes at midnight the members of the Serpent Club used to get together to talk to a blind seer, a stimulating paradox. We used to leave the bicycles on the street and go in a little way, stopping to look at the sky because it is one of the few places in Paris where sky is worth more than ground. Sitting on a pile of rubbish we would smoke for a while and Lamaga would stroke my hair or hum songs which hadn't been invented yet, absurd tunes broken with sighs and memories. I took advantage of such moments to think about useless things, a practice I had begun some years before in a hospital and which all seemed richer and more necessary every time since. With great effort, marshalling auxiliary images, thinking about smells and faces, I managed to extract out of nothing a pair of chestnut-coloured shoes I'd owned in Olavarria, in 1940. They had rubble heels and very thin soles, and when it rained the water used to seep in up to my very soul. With that pair of shoes in the hand of my memory, the rest came along by itself. The face of Doña Manuela, for example, or the poet Ernesto Morroni. But I rejected them because the game consisted in bringing back only the insignificant, the unnoticed, the forgotten, trembling at not being able to remember, attacked by those moths suggested by postponement, an imbecile for having kissed time. I finally saw beyond the shoes a can of sol brand tea, which my mother had given me in Buenos Aires, and a little double teaspoon, a mousetrap spoon, where little black mice were scalded alive in the cup of water as they gave off hissing bubbles. Convinced that memory keeps everything, not just the Albertines and the great journals of the heart and kidneys, I persisted in reconstructing the contents of my desk in Floresta, the face of a girl impossible to remember named Gekrepten, the number of drawing pens in my pencil box in the fifth grade, and I ended up trembling and desperate, because I had never been able to remember those pens. I know that they were in the pencil box in a special compartment, but I cannot remember how many they were, nor the precise moment when there were two or six, until La Maga, kissing me and blowing smoke, and her hot breath into my face, brought me back and we laughed, and we began to walk around again among the piles of rubbish, looking for the members of the club. It was about that time I realised that searching was my symbol, the emblem of those who go out at night with nothing in mind, the motives of a destroyer of compasses. I spoke about pacifistics with La Maga until we both were tired because the same thing used to happen to her, and our meeting had always been like that, and so many things, dark as a match. Always falling into exceptions, seeing herself stuck in huts not meant for people, and all this without despising anyone, without thinking we were Maldorah at the end of the trails, or Melmoth's privilege to wander about. I do not believe the Firefly gets any satisfaction from the incontrovertible fact that he is one of the most amazing wonders of this circus. And yet one can imagine a consciousness alert enough to understand that every time he lights his belly, 
this light-bearing bug must feel some inkling of privilege. In just this way, Lamaga was fascinated with the strange mix-ups she had become involved in because of the breakdown of the laws governing her life. She was one of those people who could make a bridge collapse simply by walking on it, or who could sobbingly remember having seen in a shop window the lottery ticket which had just won five million. As for me, I'm already used to the fact that quietly exceptional things happen to me, and I don't find it too horrible when I go into a dark room looking for a record album and feel in my hand the wriggling form of a centipede who has chosen to sleep in the binding. That sort of thing. Or finding great grey or green tufts in a pack of cigarettes. Or hearing the whistle of a locomotive coincide ex officio in time and pitch with a passage from a symphony by Ludwig van. Or going into a pisotiere on the Rue de Medicis and seeing a man applying himself to his urination and then step back from the urinal towards me as he holds in the palm of his hand as if it were a precious and liturgical object, a member of incredible colours and dimensions, and my realising at that moment that men is the replica of another, although they are not the same one, who 24 hours before in the Salle de Géographie had been lecturing on totems and taboos and had held up carefully in the palm of his hand ivory sticks, Lyrebird feathers, ritual coins, magic fossils, starfish, dried fish, photographs of royal concubines, offerings of hunters, enormous embalmed beetles which made the inevitable ladies present quiver with startled delight. All things considered, it's not easy to talk about La Maga, who right now must certainly be walking around Belleville or Pantin carefully looking at the ground until she finds a piece of red cloth. If she doesn't find it, she'll go on like that all night. She'll rummage in garbage cans, her eyes glassy, convinced that something horrible will happen to her if she doesn't find that piece of ransom, that sign of forgiveness or postponement. I know what it's all about because I too obey these signs. And there are times when I must find a red rag. Ever since childhood, whenever I drop something, I must pick it up, no matter what. Because if I don't, a disaster will happen, not to me, but to someone I love whose name begins with the same letter as the thing I dropped. The worst is that nothing can stop me when I drop something. And it doesn't work if somebody else picks it up, because the curse will still be effective. People usually think I'm crazy and I really am crazy when I do it, when I pounce on a pencil or a piece of paper which I have dropped. Like the night I dropped a lump of sugar in that restaurant on the Rue Scrape, a posh place with an overload of salesmen, whores with silver foxes and well-established married couples. We were there with Ronald and Etienne and I dropped a lump of sugar. It landed underneath a table some distance from ours. The first thing that had drawn my attention was how it had rolled so far away because most often a lump of sugar will stay where it lands, obeying obvious geometrical principles. But this one took off like a mothball, heightening my worry and I began to feel that it had actually been snatched out of my hand. 
Ronald knows me, and when he saw where it had landed, he began to laugh. That frightened me all the more, along with a touch of rage. A waiter came by and thought I had lost something of value, a parquet pen, a false tooth, and all he did was upset me even more. I didn't even excuse myself and fell to the floor to look for the lump among the shoes of people who were curious and thought, quite rightly, that something important was involved. I went under a table where there was a fat redhead and another woman, not so fat but just as hoary, and two businessmen, or so they seemed. The first thing I managed to find out was that the lump was nowhere in sight even though I had seen it leap among the shoes which now were moving about restlessly like a flock of chickens. A carpet on the floor made things worse, and despite the fact that it was dirty from so much treading on top of it, the lump had gone to hide in the pile and could not be found at all. The waiter was crawling around on the other side of the table, and there we were, two quadrupeds making our way about among those chicken shoes, which all the while were cackling madly up above. The waiter was still looking for a Parker or a Louis d'Or, and when we were all under the table, with a feeling of great intimacy and shadow, he asked me what it was, and I told him the truth. His face was ready to fly off his hinges, but I was not in any mood to laugh. Fear had doubled the knot in my stomach and I had become by then quite desperate and began to grab at the women's shoes to see if the lump might not be hiding under the arch of one, while the chickens cackled and the businessmen roosters pecked me on the back. I could hear Ronald and Etienne breaking up with laughter as I moved from one table to another until I found the lump ensconced behind an empire foot. Everybody was furious and so was I as I held the sugar tightly in my palm and felt it dissolve in the sweat my hand gave off, as if it were some sort of mean and sticky vengeance meant to terminate another one of those episodes that I was always getting involved in. This and more absurd and ridiculous and funny and sad and emotional chapters can be found in Hopscotch, Rayuela, by Julio Cortázar. Muchas gracias, Che. Grazie mille e alla prossima. L'ultima. <laughs>